Welcome to O'Connor's The Contractor's Life. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Today we conclude episode 10 with part 2 of our discussion with Rob Crott, former member of the United States Army, published author of AR-15, the Operating Build Manual, and Save the Last Bullet for Yourself. What I've seen is, uh, in difficulties is, uh, uh, guess what? Uh, the corporate world, civilian world, civilian employers, and even ex-military guys who are managers and, and bosses aren't going to take care of you the way your training command took care of you in the military at all. Right. Um, case in point, uh, uh, I was basically appointed team leader of uh, a dozen guys out of, uh, uh, I think we had 24, I think it was about right, 24, 25 at uh, CRC. We're going over for the same company in Iraq. We're doing the uh, the CRC shuffle. And the corporate boy said, hey, uh, let's come down to uh, the German club. I'm going to give you a dinner and we'll talk to you. And the one goober from California had been a, a cop, and it was a police company. And I'll, I'll just say it, it was SOC SMG. So this was the SMG side of SOC. SOC was two ex-Navy SEALs. Uh, SMG was an established security company of, of basically ex-California cops. They married up together in order to run this contract because the two SEALs needed a, you know, a company that could pay people and, you know, all that type of thing. They needed office support, basically, admin. And this guy is a high muckety muck, whatever, and this little security company in California stands up and he says, and I want you to know we got a million dollar policy in all of you. And I see guys nodding. I see guys nodding. Of course, they're, they're all vets, but I don't think anybody been a contractor before. And of course, I just come back from Yemen, been home, home two weeks, and I'm like, mm, been doing this, you know, went overseas for Uncle Sammy before in Somalia and done some, a couple other out, a couple other gigs. Worked to sign my contracts with civilian outfits, and I'm looking at this guy going, raise my hand. Yeah, Rob. What policy? Because I have not signed anything, I have not designated a beneficiary, and I have not seen a policy underwritten. Hmm. And I said, if you're talking about DBA insurance, you need to clarify that. <laughs> That's only a million dollars if it's a, it's a, we're at the maximum payout. Which I understand is fifty thousand a year. Over the course of twenty years, I looked at the guys. Over the course, of, if you die under DBA and you are married, legally married, uh, over the course of twenty years, your wife, if she does not remarry, will accrue a million dollars. But it is not a million dollar policy. It's not a million dollar payout. Right? Is that what you are talking about, DBA? Oh, you should. I was. If they could have fired me and replaced me at that point in time in the contract, right before we shipped out, they probably would have. <laughs> and as the one Navy SEAL, uh, it was, their names were Johnson and Janky, and I was I was there. Said to me in a booth quietly later, said Rob, we made you a team leader because we thought you were a team player. Hmm. Well, two E five E six Navy SEALs. I'm like, well, what do you mean by team player? Team player is not letting my guys get fucked over. Right. You don't lie to them and blow smoke up their ass. They think they're going to go over there and if they die, they're whoever gets a million dollars. And they're not thinking they didn't catch up as quick like, wait a minute, I didn't sign nothing. Right. Who, who are you paying? Who are you paying? You know, if I got a million dollars. So there was no 
policy on us other than DBA, which, mm. you know, the company had really nothing to do with. They've got to pay in, but right. they didn't take out an insurance policy on us. They, and then again, if you're in today's, and this was written shortly after World War II, for those that don't know what DBA is, Defense Base Act. And it was basically, they realized they had a lot of, they had contractors then were mostly like uh, construction workers working on bases overseas, like in the Pacific, whatever, building stuff after the, you know, uh, after we'd taken the islands or after the, the war was over, and uh, a guy would die, and he wasn't covered by anything. So DBA was set up to give the surviving spouse some money. Okay. And under, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but under some circumstances, you can, if you have a dependent child, um, or if you have even an adult child who is uh, in some way, shape, or form disabled, if you have uh, uh, elderly parents or something, I mean, it has a very specific certain provisos hmm. that you can uh, designate a beneficiary if, uh, other than a spouse or if you don't have a spouse. Now, for guys living living with a girl, uh, or you don't, you know, you don't, uh, you don't have a family like that. You know, you're not. No, they're not going to pay pay money out to your niece. Right. Things may have changed. My understanding at the time was, uh, uh-uh, uh, spouses only. Yeah, I. And yeah. That that's that's been my experience, and 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 maybe it yeah. has changed, but from from yeah. what I gather, talking with the other guys that are still doing this, it, it's pretty much the same. Yeah, but I had twenty some guys sitting there. They're not in their heads thinking this company just wrote, underwrote them for a million dollars death right. benefit. Right. You know, I mean, so you're gonna you're gonna get this. Right. Uh, you know, they they like to exaggerate, gild the lily, stretch the truth, <laughs> blow smoke up your ass. I had a AirScan, another company, went to Angola for them. Uh, sat right there, and the boss Walter Holloway said, uh, "Yep." When you get over there, you got to have grenade launchers and oh, we got all kinds of weapons and all this shit. And we get over there, we got one broken Browning high power and we're having to get those stockless AKs from the Angolan Navy huh. and ended up buying two macros on the black market from a cop. Wow. Uh, you know, but they, I literally have it. Yep. We're going to get, we have grenade launchers. I'm like, wait a minute, grenade launchers. I'm thinking like, well, there's probably some old RPGs laying around, but I really don't need need to mess with that, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, just Air Force colonel blowing smoke. Right. And when we got – and you have to, to – uh, advice to any contractor working overseas, uh, here's two caveats. One, and this came into play with that company, everybody that worked for them got shorted, at least myself and, and the people I knew. And the pilots that were there ahead of us told me this happened to them. You got shorted your last paycheck by the company. Because if you came home and you had a pay period um, uh, outright, uh, you didn't get that money because they just wouldn't pay you. And if you went to them about it, they'd say, we don't have to. Or if you want to make it an issue, we'll charge you with theft of company property. Hmm. And I went all the way to Federal Department of Labor through the veterans, uh, New York veterans rep, who was a friend of mine, ex-SF uh, Vietnam veteran, Mike Force guy, mobile gorilla force guy. And uh, they basically came back with, doesn't matter. It's an American company, and you're an American, and you work for them in the U.S. or paid for them in the U.S. But the minute you leave the country and perform work, OCONUS, there's nothing we can do to make them pay you. Hmm. 
and you got a contract or whatever, you can see about taking it to court, but, uh, and then the, the other caveat is you make sure you've got uh, health and medical insurance, whatever, and if a company's providing it, you get a hard copy of that policy in your hand and you verify it, verify it with the underwriter. Right. Because we were sat down, we filled out all the paperwork, for our insurance, health, medical, repatriation, all that good stuff. We went over to Angola, and about a month later, a South African working on the base had a heart attack, and they had to uh, evac him back to South Africa. And lo and behold, found out talking to those guys that uh, they had screwed up uh, his insurance paperwork and hadn't went in or the premium had been paid or whatever. Uh, but the company, in good faith, uh, honored it because it was their screw up, of course, hmm. and they said the, just just getting him out was about a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Okay. So I called up the company back in Titusville and I said, "Hey, uh, I just want to verify this because we had this incident happen. So why don't to make it easier here when this happens, we need copies of our insurance policy and our paperwork." And the owner's wife. His second wife, who was the, I think the babysitter at one time, you know, uh, and, um, and I think now, uh, I think there's a third wife or ex-wife, whatever, but anyways, uh, she says, Oh, well, you don't get full health and medical on any kind of insurance. I said, what? Oh, not until you've been with us for six months. I said, six months. What are you talking about? She goes, well, that's industry standard. I went to a seminar and they told, and, and any company, you have to work six months. I said, lady, this ain't Walmart. But that, and that's what happened. You got a mom and pop, and you know, the housewife is head of HR. And again, I made the mistake of assuming I filled out my paperwork just like I did in the army or the other outfits. And I realized it was hurry, hurry up, hurry up, get us over there. I realized I don't have a hard copy of that. Right. After this incident went down. So now I'm not the favorite person at that company at that time because I'm screaming over the phone for this idiot's wife, which makes it even more difficult. He had that kind of nepotism, you know, that I would like to tear a strip off this HR as I normally would, and I really can't, you know. And and I'm like, this this level of incompetence, I said, if, if myself or one of my guys had went down, would we have been abandoned? And given the ethics of that company as they dealt with me later, most certainly, I think, my mm. opinion. Mm. You know, again, this is all my opinion, right. okay? Uh, to this day, this you know, speaks of my craw. Right. Uh, that it was, it was blatant, uh, you know, unprofessional incompetence. Right. Uh, they, they had some other issues as well in other contracts. But uh, to treat your people like that. And uh don't have anybody looking out for us. Well, uh, because, well, first of all, it was a year contract. But when we arrived in country, we found out it was a three-month turnkey uh, setup. Hmm. Yeah, we were, we were training train these guys up, and then um, they're going to ship us out. Uh, but it was presented to us. We signed a contract for a year. Huh. But again, there's no guarantee. It's at will, so they could fire you. Right. And I always like that will, too, because it's like uh, uh, I call it the two-and-two two rule. They'll fire you in two seconds, but they want two weeks' notice from you. <laughs> right. Well, I tell guys, I go, look, I go, look, if you need to jump or you need to move, 
fine, but have a verified have have a plausible excuse. All right. Uh, death in the family, whatever. Everybody says they don't like contract jumpers, and there were these these companies started working together at one time about 2003, 2004, a couple of them. Uh, and you couldn't leave one and go to the other. They wouldn't take you. Right. And so these HR, either at what level it, it was happening, I don't know. Whether it was a program manager level in country or the HR guys or somebody, but somebody cut a little deal, you know. Uh, I don't, don't know if that's even legal hmm. to say, you know, you don't hire our guys, we won't hire your guys, we won't stop this contract jumping. Right. But, but those, are, but those are all things that you learn the hard way. You know, unless, yeah, they, yeah, unless, I mean, they, unless they listen to someone like you, they only learn it the hard way from experience. Oh, yeah. And I've had those guys. I mean, I, I tell you, we had uh, we called them the Ranger Kinder. And they had a couple of a, a crew of four or five guys came over to Najaf with sock after we'd been there a couple months. And I kicked myself in the butt because I had worked with a former U.S. Army Ranger who was a Blackfoot uh, Indian living in Canada. And those guys crossed back and forth. And he was a lieutenant uh, in the Canadian Reserves and had went to their Pathfinder, their ranger school. Uh, great guy. And uh, I went out with him to Wainwright, which is their infantry school, and did a uh, uh, op four with them. You know, so I basically just wore, you know, camouflage pants and civvies and just mixed in with the reserve guys. And, and I hung out on Wainwright for like, you know, four or five days and ran around with an M16 and, and I'd done that a couple of times with the regiments up there with the guys I knew. It's like, yeah, okay, wink, wink, you know. <laughs> and uh, But he met some rangers there and got in contact with some of the newer guys. And I sent him a note, hey, get over here. Get on this. I can get you in. He sent it to these guys who turned out he only knew by way of the ranger form. And they jumped on it, and they all came over and were a pain in the ass, basically. <laughs> uh and, but there was one guy that showed up in that intake who was an ex-Marine. And out of all these a dozen or more new newbies, uh, who actually disrespected a couple of the Vietnam era guys, I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, you know, young kids, right? And when I say young kids, I mean like early twenties, you know? And, uh, one Marine came up to me and, uh, after he'd been about a week or two and he goes, not an op and he goes, Hey Rob, he goes, You've been doing this quite a while, right? And I go, yeah, yeah. And uh, I said, yeah, my first big contract was at that time would have been like, uh, you know, 15 years ago or 10 or, well, about, would have been about actually 10 years ago, you know, in Somalia. And he goes, uh, what do I need to do, you know, to, to really, you know, in other words, keep working, you know, move on to bigger, better things. And I go, do you speak a foreign language? He goes, no. I said, get yourself a foreign language and get fluent. Mm. And I gave him a couple examples. And I've seen many uh, a cool job come down the pike where if I was a uh, fluent French speaker, mm. I'd be on that gig. Uh, I'm conversational. But, you know, if you if you have, the, you have that proficiency. Right. Uh, I picked up a couple jobs just because my Spanish is acceptable. Mm. Um, Arabic. Uh, not uh, not a, a go or no go, but it was like, oh, you've got the Arabic course, yeah, I got the U.S. Army hundred hour, you know, Iraqi dialect course, blah blah blah. Hmm. Oh, that looks really great. That looks good on paper. I tell the client that they get excited about that shit, whatever. <laughs> but you know, uh, 
And I told guys, hey, hey, don't bullshit. Uh, you show up and, you know, you need to speak it and you can't speak it. There's going to be a problem. Right. <laughs> you know, but, and I, you know, I've been there, you know, I've been there. I've seen the guy show up and I just, you know, and then, uh, we're rattling along in Spanish and he's just like, I'm like, oh shit. Okay. This is going to be an issue. I uh, keep him out of the, keep him out of the, uh, the meetings and we're all good, you know, but, um, uh, yeah, it's invaluable, but there's a lot of things like that. I said, you know, getting a degree or, uh, uh, what really irked me a lot. I think I'd walk into a talk and there'd be, you know, there's four or five, uh, kids sitting there in the talk, active army, you know, they're E3, E4, E5s or more even, and they're playing video games and shit or they're goofing off. And I'm like, look, dude. You're here a year for a year and a half. When you walk out of here, if you don't have a BA, you should be pretty well on your way to one. Right. You can do all this shit online now. Right. I'd have killed for this when I was in active duty. Hmm. Man. Right. You know, in right. your spare time, quit watching videos. Quit playing video games. Right. And the video game stuff, I've never played a video game in my life huh. on a computer. I mean, when you say video game to me, I'm talking uh, uh, Space Invaders, okay? <laughs> Atari. <laughs> Centipede, whatever, in a bar, you know, right. with a pitcher. Right. You know, all right? Uh, and, again, I understand it's a, it's a different uh, generation, uh, but uh, uh, I just don't get it. When when I'm on a FOB, mainly DIA, and I was uh, I was a site security manager on the, on the TWIST contract, we stood it up. So I had about 75 Ugandans there and uh, four American supervisors and an American uh, medic. And I was the colonel. Bill Zem, 101st Airborne, uh, introduced me to his staff. Is considered Rob a member of the staff. He's an ex-Army uh, captain with staff experience. He's my site security manager. Uh, consider him to be a S-whatever. And uh, so that was my position there. And I got to know, you know, the company commanders, first sergeants, a lot of other people. And pretty much day to day knew the, the, the operations that were, were, uh, moving in and out. And, uh, I'm walking over to the B dock and, um, Space Defense Operations Center and, uh, through the parking lot, uh, dozens and dozens of MRFs and Humvees and, and all that. And here the, here's one of the companies getting all jocked up and I see this kid I bullshitted with in the mess hall or something, whatever. And I go, Hey, uh, you know, Schmedlap. How's it going? And he looks at me and he goes, oh, sir, I'm so tired. I'm so tired, man, and we're going out on an op. And I'm like, yeah, it's old dark 30, uh, whatever. And I go, well, what, are they running you guys back to back or, or high tempo or what's the problem here? And he goes, no, dude, the new Call of Duty came in, Halo or whatever, and uh, we played it for eight hours straight. Eight hours straight, dude. He's, like, proud of this. And him and his, these tent pegs are sitting in there. You know, should have had a squad leader or a first sergeant or someone kicking him in the damn ass, turn the lights up, get the shit up, go to sleep. We're rolling at 06 tomorrow on a real live combat mission in the SUNY fucking triangle. The SUNY fucking triangle, triangle, what is he? He's a 240 gunner. Oh, wow. He's going to be sitting in the turret. And I'm like, you mean to tell me, and of course I've got a Vietnam era 11 Bravo, uh, E7, uh, MP reservist from Ohio, who I've known since uh, 1988. We were doing dumb shit in Guatemala with the Guatemalan army. And, uh, I look at him and he just, 
she's about ready to blow a gasket. And I look at this kid, and I go, you mean to tell me you spent all night playing a video game, a, a, a combat video game, combat simulation on a computer, when you know you had an active live combat mission the next morning, and now you're falling asleep on your feet. Wow. You've got to go out there where people are going to try to kill you, have been trying to kill you, but trying to kill us, and you're going to have a good opportunity to kill some people in return. But you're too fucking tired to keep your eyes open and look down the fucking machine gun sights. I was, I was about screaming at him when I walked away. I was just disgusted. I'll bet. But I had I'll to pull bet. the, I had to pull my uh, E7 away, my former E7, uh, one of my supervisors. Uh, I, I, I was, he was going to grab a kid by a stackish wall. Uh, you know? Oh, and man. I walked out. Yeah. The, the, the disintegration in discipline that I saw, uh, and that was 2008 by that time after five years, you know, pretty much, was just unbelievable. Right. I mean, pretty much I deployed back over there five years to the day of the invasion. Hmm. Uh, and, um, and you know, I had been in and out, uh, various contracts, and uh, I did a brief hitch as a CRC instructor for, for about eight, nine months, uh, uh, you know, and I had enough of America and crap wages and said, okay, time to go back to the war. But... Um, what I saw as far as disintegration and uh, discipline and readiness and training, uh, horrible, horrible. And and when you hear start talking about uh, high tempo hurts us, uh, sustainability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, when the colonels and generals are talking that 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 smack, it's it's for real, it's for real. And I saw it at the ground level. Uh, you know, I had Ugandans came in. And uh, I get these guys, and, of course, they don't know I speak Swahili from uh, uh, working and living in Kenya and, and Uganda. And uh, so I kept my mouth shut. And uh, so, I mean, I'm not fluent, but I'm up country Swahili. I can, uh, you know, chatter along a little bit, and I can pretty much pick up on when you're saying good things about me or when you're saying bad things about me. <laughs> and uh, so there were some very, uh, very surprised individuals at our uh, uh, formation about uh, a week later after training and in processing, we actually went online, and I yelled, two guys are late, and I yelled, who pays the pace? <laughs> Which is hurry up. <laughs> you know? And I get in line, and I go, Tava Dali, you know, Tate uh, Zana. And I said, yeah, please and thank you. And uh, the, the guy's looking at what? Then I started giving them a, a greeting, basically giving them the prepared speech in Swahili. Huh. And I can see the looks going, oh, man, we are so fucked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I knew. I, I, had a, I had a couple marked down for like, okay, all right, you're going to get yours now. Right. You know, <laughs> but um, anyways, uh, most of these kids, uh, they were, well, they were, all, they were all supposed to be former UPD, Uganda People's Defense Force. And I looked at them, I'm like, you know, they're pretty young. And they had to be, I think, I forget if it was 22 or 26, whatever the minimum age was. I think it was like 22 or something. And I'm like, some of these kids, there's no way they're 22. And even if they're, you know, 22, then how they have this experience in the UPDF? Well, they had what they call the Kadogos. Kadogos little, means little ones. The Kadogos were child soldiers. Hmm. You know, they had 12-year-olds marching uh, from Uganda to the Congo, you know. Huh. Uh, so, okay, so some of these guys 
could have some experience. But as I found out going through their records, and then another caveat for when you're working with uh, foreign guard forces or, or, or foreign troops or indigenous folks, uh, all their passports, I mean, I say all, but I said, you know, I don't know, a couple dozen, had the exact same birth dates. And then I'd have another dozen with another exact same birth date. Uh, the same one for their discharge documents. They all had honorable discharges, all signed by the same guy, all dated the same day, all the same terms of service. You know, so Madam Kellen, as she was known, um, the sister-in-law, the president of uh, uh, Uganda, uh, Museveni, uh, ran the security company. And, you know, everybody had to have so many years in the UPDF, and then they were supposed to have like a year of civilian security experience. Well, according to them, uh, their office and all the paperwork they put out, they did. But you couldn't verify this. I, I uh, uh, read one kid the riot act. He'd really screwed up, and he was already in tears. And comes in the office. I sit down. I go, I forget what he did. And I said, now look. I looked at him. I go, how old are you? And he immediately said, 18, sir. <laughs> and I nodded, and I go, how old are you again? And, of course, their, their first sergeant, you know, as I, I made him first sergeant, uh, who, who was an old soldier in his 40s, kind of gave this kid the high sign. The kid goes, uh, uh, 22, sir. I'm like, very good, very good, outstanding. <laughs> but, you know, in my own joking way, but I was like, I knew these guys were underage, and I had sent uh, a letter, uh, an email, whatever, up to hire in Baghdad and said, hey, look, be advised. And I did a full paper audit, and I had the numbers. How many guys are all on the same birthday? How many guys, you know, same discharge papers, blah, blah, blah. And my estimation, how many of them were under the age of 22? And, of course, this is news they don't want to hear. Right. right. At probably all levels. At some level, it should be like, God damn it, we're going to fix this. This is bullshit. We're getting lied to by the, this Ugandan company, and this is going to bite us in the ass where it very well could have if it got up, gone up the chain to a point in the Army or the U.N. or some NGO right. that, you know, you've got these guys that basically, I mean, I could hire, you know, I could hire 50 guys off the street in the U.S. Right. And, and, and taught them how to use an AK and, and put them in a uniform and everything. It would have had about the same level of service. Right. But, of course, we're getting them for initially a thousand a month and then it was eight hundred a month and then they dropped down to six hundred a month, which six hundred a month was the per capita income per annum in Uganda at the time. Between four fifty I think and six hundred, depending on who you looked at. Hmm. And so these guys are making basically roughly annual uh paycheck uh average every month. Right. Every month. So it'd be like like explain to people, imagine uh, you're back in your boondock hometown where you grew up, like I am, and you're making 35000 a month. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know, we're, well, a we're a hamburger. We're a hamburger is still four ninety nine. you know. Right. But. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that, Rob, because um, I, too, had some very interesting experiences with Ugandans and Sierra Leones about that same time frame. And prior to that, I had worked with, you know, some of the guys from India and, yeah. you know, and, and, and guys I worked with, you know, on the American side and, and British and some of the other people, most of them looked down and sneered at these guys and had 
somewhere between mild respect and disdain for for a lot of these guys. And, yeah. But and you hearkened earlier about uh, cultural, you know, respect and one thing or another. Yes. And, and and I figured out in fairly short order when I worked with the Indians, and then you know it helped me, it served me with the Iraqis and the Afghans, and then of course with the Syrians and the Ugandans. But you take them at uh-huh. face value, you know. For the most part, after a time, you get to know when they're when they're trying to pull one over you. But I'm but yeah. But there are some really good, just like any culture. There's some really good ones, and they're lieutenants. Oh, there's some killers. They're sergeant major. Yeah. All those guys and their first sergeants. Yeah. We got along really well. They were ex-professional soldiers in, in their own mm-hmm. respect. Some of them had the title bushmaster yeah. and other stuff. And these yeah. guys, because they liked me, because I was. And they're and and I'm not I'm really I'm just saying they consider me a professional and I took my job seriously and, and yeah. they helped me make sure things got done they looked out for me they translated but what, so what you're saying is that that made a huge huge difference just that cultural you, respect you have for people. to evaluate you have to evaluate um, people whether they are counterparts or your subordinates or whatever in, in an indigenous culture. Based on their own merits, just as in our culture. I mean, hey, look around. How many kids you see in the mall? You want your RSP platoon, your rifle platoon. Look at some of these guys. Some of these guys that, that that we know, our generation, our age, have been worthless. Uh, excuse my language, worthless fucks their whole life. And it's like, so you can't, you can't look, you can't, you know, put them in uniform and go, you know, well, that that you know, Americans are shitty soldiers, right? You know. And you can't say, well, Ameri- all Americans are super soldiers because look right. at these guys. Right. Uh, so every every culture, every country, uh, every unit formation has their, their standouts and they have their dirt bags. Right. But uh, uh, I mean, perfect example. I uh, I right after 9/11, I went over to uh, India and made a parachute jump with the Indian Army for their jubilee, and I was uh, second out the door following this four-star general who was kind of famous over there, Tindy. Mm-hmm. They called them. But, uh, man, I saw some some of these Sikhs, some of the uh, one Subadar, it was Special Operations uh, Warrant Officer, basically, just looked at me and my E7 buddy, as I mentioned before. We were there together. Just put the fear of God into me. Huh. I mean, I, uh, just, just you know, these guys, you could tell if, if they didn't think you were, because we had to go through ground, uh, ground training. But it's almost like I expected a guy to come over and, uh, Smack me against the wall and give me some wall to wall because my boots weren't uh, properly shined. I mean, seriously. And I yeah. saw some extremely professional standout soldiers. Yeah. And dealing with the Indians, I, I uh, did a ride alongs, uh, two or three of them over the course of a couple of years, uh, in and out of South Africa with the anti car hijack unit in uh, Durban. Very elite. Huh. Very elite. Uh, 25 drivers, 25 shooters, and they drive uh, high performance BMWs and they had a couple of undercover operations, and one of them were two Indian guys with the gold rim sunglasses and the gold chains and the shirts open to the navel, driving a brand-new Mercedes, hanging their Rolexes out the window. And those guys would go out and purposely get hijacked or, or jumped by armed robbers. And when I'm talking three or four guys with AKs, huh. and these two dudes, their record was they never went more than three days without a firefight. Wow. They were stone cold killers, and they were happy, good hangout guys too, man. Right. Good to party with. Right. I was in Kenya, and I, in Kenya and Nairobi, they had a hostage situation in a store, and their tactical team went in, 
and it was four Indians with Uzis, and it was all over in a matter of seconds. Wow. And I find that throughout Africa, in some of these national police forces or special operations units, they are Indian uh, by bloodline, culture. They may be a second or third generation born in that country, but mm. they're Indians. Mm. And they're the guys, you, that culture you can count on right. in, in Africa to provide uh you know high speed operators here and there but i mean obviously you know we've all seen the guys working the slurping machine at 711 now these guys are not abu or rajiv you know uh, the guy sucking in at the day's end um again it's you can't generalize and people do uh strangely enough i've worked with some uh you know, foreign troops, whether they're African, Southeast Asian, Central American, I'm like, son of a bitch. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I trained Iraqis for a year. I would have a class of between 60 and 80 every, I think it was every 30 days we rotated uh, for Bureau of Diplomatic Protection to train PSDs, basically. There were guys there that no matter how hard we tried, how hard we worked with them, could not get the slide off of a Glock. <laughs> You know, guys that couldn't tie their boots. Guys, we knew we had a couple, every class, at least one or two that was probably uh, mentally handicapped. Uh, but they were some somebody's cousin, you know, right. nephew, whatever. And I saw guys that were lower on the totem pole than those people who were, we're talking standout shooters, athletes, right. runners, agile, smart, quick, that could have been, would have made it in a Ranger battalion or an A team. Anywhere in in the U.S., if if given the opportunity and the training, they just had it together. They were just really sharp, right. so really impressive guys, and you love to see that. They're just naturals, right. just naturals, right out of the box, you know. Well, but going back to uh, Mamudia and the Ugandans, uh, you know, I actually had a first sergeant come up to me. He he'd went on a walk through uh, through our troop tents with my uh, medic, and he goes, "Wow." I wish I could get our guys to live like this. And I'm looking at him and I said, you're a goddamn first sergeant. Lay down the law. Set the standard. We, they were not allowed to have any, any, uh, only one electronic device out. Um, they could have their wall locker open if they were on their bunk. There was no food or drink allowed in the, in the, uh, troop tents. They were, bunks were made, GI standard, sweat, mop, the whole nine yards. Uh, dress right dress, and if, you know, woe well unto ye if you left the wall locker unlocked. <laughs> you know, I went right right into Fort Benning basic training with it because that's how we had, you know, one theft in the barracks there amongst Ugandans. Uh, you'd have, you know, it, it, it would be bloody. Right. Um, but, uh, and you couldn't have them uh, living like they did back home, uh, you know, just throwing their trash wherever. Right. Because that's they, if they lived in a village, that's what they do. I've lived in Africa, and you just throw your 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 garbage out, you know, out the window and stuff, you know. And so it's a different culture and different levels of hygiene. Uh, but we maintain that to the point where the, you walked into an American troop tent, it was like the swamp from Mash. What the fuck is this? <laughs> you know, reeking, smell, you know, dirty clothes, piss bottles, you shit all over the place. Mine was right out of the movies. It looked like, uh, you know, something out of Full Metal Jacket, huh. you know, with, with, without the, uh, the, the wax floors. Huh. And again, this sergeant said, 
well, I wish our guys looked like this. And I'm like, why? Well, I was just dumbfounded. Right. Well, why they, don't they, they could? Yeah, you're the guy exactly. in charge. Set, yeah. set the standard. You know, and, and that and that that brings up a, an important uh, point and uh, one that I'm sure you're you're well versed with and, and probably wouldn't disagree with is that guys like us or people that we know, uh, we set the standard, we set the tone, and if we're not leading, and I mean not sitting behind your desk issuing out orders if you're not out there with them leading doing the same thing but that's what i mean by setting the tone these guys will um they will help you if they see you doing that and they will do what you're asking to do you know there's a reason why we have to establish regulations rules or orders uh because you can't have the the one of the ranger kinder walk into a, a client staff meeting with about three or four ex-colonels sitting there with his T-shirt sleeves cut off, holes in his T-shirt, dew dribbling out of his lip, you know, unwashed, scratching himself, dirty pants. I'm like, and he's like, we have a contract. I don't put up this bullshit anymore. Uh, no, you will. Okay. And uh, uh, a friend who I initially uh, mentored, uh, in, uh, 08, arrives in Baghdad. He had big hoop earrings. He's got the sleeves cut off. He's got one of those strange manicured beards. And he's basically drawing attention to himself with some other demands, uh, he was making about switching from Force Pro to PSD. And I told him, I said, man, you can't, you, you, you gotta calm down. I said, get yourself straight. Put on a, put on a, you know, one of the 511 shirts they issued or, or a polo or something and get the earrings out and all this shit. And he's proud of his, Big guns and his full sleeve cast. And I go, I know that one colonel in there. I worked with him before. He's a great guy. Okay. But he looks at you and he thinks cowboy. Right. Because the last guy he saw that looked like you left him on a road alone, uh, in out here in the fucking desert. Huh. I said, and I said, he's not the one in charge of you, but the guys are even worse or, or even, you know, Got a bigger stick up the ass than he would. He's a great guy. I said, a couple of these guys in here, man, you're just looking to cut somebody. Right. They'll oh, do yeah. it. They'll, they will. And I told him, I said, you know, and, and he, he only, he wasn't there but, but a week or two for some other reasons. But the bottom line is, it's just like any organization. You're going to look around for that guy to make a fucking example. And I tell people, don't be that guy. Right. Because you know and I know. Easiest way to establish that discipline, establish that baseline, regulation baseline, is to boot the dude that won't meet the standards. Right. Yeah. Nobody's like, oh shit. If I don't, if I don't, if I don't shave this wacky looking shit and put on a decent shirt, you know, uh, and tuck it, you know, and pull up my pants and shit, then uh, I'm going to be fired too. Right. Yeah. Well, no kidding. Right. Well, you know, and, and you know, I don't know if it had to do with the time frame, or maybe it was just the company and the contract. Maybe it was a combination of all of it. Uh, yeah. But there were times when, I mean, I was frustrated. I'm, and I'm guessing you had yeah. a similar frustration where you wanted to send guys home, you wanted them out of there, but and when you talked about it with the guys that could make it happen, they said, "Well, we can't because." They're short, or you know, or we're undermanned, yeah. or we're short-staffed, or whatever. It's like, and so you got to sit there and endure and tolerate that, and and try to make something good out of something that's not. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Perfect I mean, example. Uh, I deployed 
to USIS at Camp Dublin, which was one of those doesn't exist kind of places. Uh, counterterrorism, uh, SOF facility, we trained Iraqi, uh, their, uh, ERTs, their SWAT, their BDP, all this stuff. And I, I left out of Virginia with about a half dozen guys that were some solid, solid people. And I lived in the same tent with them for several months. We were on that project for about a year together. And one of them was like, uh, you know, uh, retired SF warrant, halo instructor, just, you know, a good friend of this day. And I could run down resumes on a couple of other ones, but they were just some sharp friggin' dudes. Seals had been on the Karzai detail, et cetera, et cetera. So we get to Amman on a layover, and we're told we're going to be meeting a guy there that's going to join our team. So whoever it was that's in, you know, charge of getting, you know, the, there's always that one guy that gets, oh, yeah, here's the paperwork and the phone numbers. You're, you're in charge of making sure nobody, you know, gets lost, right? Uh, gets comes in, we're having tacos or whatever, and he says, hey, we got this guy coming in. He's supposed to be some, like, Norwegian Green Beret shit. I'm like, what? Norwegian? Well, not knowing that when we got there, we did have South Africans infiltrated the project, unfortunately. <laughs> um, another story there. We had uh, uh, a couple of Brit SAS guys that had some serious pedigrees. We had a New Zealand SAS guy that everybody wanted to kill. Um, and we had a, uh, an Australian uh, uh, SF and top dude who's actually from New Zealand, who's one of my best friends to this day. So we had a strange mixture of, of, of people. And, uh, but so this Norwegian shows up and the guy was like about 120, dripping wet, huh. nothing but jug ears and Adam's apple with that little manicured beard that goes just along the jawline, you know? And I'm like, the fuck is this kid? He walks up to us and goes, Hey, my name is Billy. I'm on your team. I think you were the guys I'm supposed to see. Like, the fuck? The kid was like 21 or 22. Whoever vetted his resume, and uh, they couldn't have even hardly read it, they would have had to put some dates together and figure out how old he was. <laughs> and look at his experience. So he had, I guess, minimum two years in, in the Norwegian Army as a conscript. So he mopped floors and ran a floor buffer and shined his boots, right? But he had all this high-speed shit on his resume, and it's like, there's no way you went to the sniper course and you did this and do that. And I'd worked with some Norwegians you know, ex-Norwegian Army guys in uh, Bosnia. We had an outfit called the Viking Platoon. Swedes, Norwegians, Danes, even a Finn or two, I think, and they drove three Russian guys' jeeps from Stockholm all the way to fucking Thomas of Grad, Bosnia. That's some hardcore shit right there. <laughs> but I'm like, they were young guys, but they, you know, they had it together. I mean, they had actually been special operations in their parent armies. And this kid, what the fuck? So, I mean, he... They assigned him as an armorer because he, once he got there, and one of his deals, well, where, well, we paid for him, you know, his plane ticket and all that, and then we'd have to, and again, having been a country manager and a PM, uh, and a director of port security with Americans working for me, all of a sudden the guy quits or has to leave or something, or you want to fire him, but now it's like, well, do you really want to tell the CEO or tell the, the PM or, or tell the office back in the U.S. why you're moving somebody out. Right. And it's like, why do you have such a high turnover, Rob, is what you're going to get. Or what did the guy do? Right. Or why do we have to buy more plane tickets? Right. I thought these guys were going to be in for six months. 
Right. And so you're absolutely 100% right. I've been on the end going like, I will put that fucker on the plane myself to like, ah, shit. And of course, I honestly, I have not kept, I have not kept anybody on. I have bit the bullet, but that's not everybody. And I think probably if it was compounded by a factor of at a zero to that number, you know, then then I might have been like, okay, yeah, I might have been shipped out, you know. Or if you don't have a good relationship with the client, then it's like, why are we, you know, why are you getting rid of this guy, bring another one in? And a lot of people's mothers die, you know. But uh, um, the fact that this guy was, they said, well, we'll, we'll make him an armorer. We'll put him an assistant armorer. He can help out. Uh, Mike Chud in there, you know, King Muffins and shit. Right. And of course, the armor, the armor is a number seven IPSEC shooter, uh, you know, that year. Huh. Uh, you know, so that's the level of armor that we've got. He's a real gun guy. Huh. And, uh, this idiot then, you know, pulls a G3 out of, they had a G3 laying around for where I don't know. Comes out to my range. I'm running a staff shoot, opens up on full automatic, and literally, I swear to God, Goes on his ass, right on his back, with rounds flying in the air. I'm getting a fucking deck because he had the deal went sideways. He'd have blown a couple others away. Wow. And so that's the only story of incompetence I think I need to, uh, to broach at this juncture on this individual. But he did his three months at 800 a day like anybody else. Wow. That's what really pissed me off. Right. And then he was offered an extension after the first 90 to stay. And he's complaining because they're going to bump him down to 350 to sit in an air-conditioned trailer and clean weapons. Wow. And I hated the guy. I wanted him gone, but I looked at him and said, you're an idiot. You don't take that. Right. <laughs> Go back to Oslo where the bouncer at the teen club, <sighs> you know, literally. Yeah, that's what he did. Well, um, and that's so the other he, thing they did, too. You're right, because I understand they're concerned about the, the dollars because that's a lot of money to get somebody – in trained up all the stuff yeah. they got to go through and then send them home. And so I, I do remember now that you brought that up, we, the, the workaround was to transfer him to another location. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or downgrade him to something where he's not going to hurt right. himself or anybody else. Right. But when they, but you know, we're talking four or five months, you know, into the contract, it's like, well, shit, you know, we're paying this guy. But this guy fortunately did nine, only did 90 days, but within that 90 days, he was an occasional thorn in my side, and I don't need this shit. <laughs> right. Well, go out and help Rob on the range. I'm like, no, don't help Rob on the range. <laughs> and he comes over to me, and we're in the middle of a, a live fire, which is a capstone to 30 days of training, which he has not participated in. Okay? He's not he's not safe and technically proficient with, with a weapon. We've seen that. And he wants to go over and start running uh, running students, which he has not trained with, worked with, instructed, or established a rapport. And he says, Tim told me to come over and help you. I go, good, go over there and uh, help load magazines. Oh, no, no, I am going to run the next iteration. I am an instructor, too. And I lost it. And I was very, you know, there's a point in time when professionalism, politeness, and all this shit, I'm like, you're a fucking idiot. Get the fuck out of my face. And now I got the team leader coming over going, you know, you can't talk to him that way, and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what, what the fuck in us? <laughs> You know, the fucking guy's worthless. You know, I'm at fault now. I'm at fault now for using language. Give me a break. You know, I said, and I, I, I basically had to say, look, you find somebody else to run this. I'm not taking responsibility if that guy 
gives A, an instruction to one of my students, or B, picks up a weapon out here. <laughs> oh, that's and that was the end of that discussion. That, that is, was the end of that discussion because no one else is going to step up. Right, right. Oh, you know, but Robert, I had to, I'm laughing at <laughs> You have, there are times when that may have cost me some, uh, you know, some influence with that particular uh, supervisor or some goodwill, right? Right. Uh, and I certainly didn't engender any friendship with this douchebag, but, it, you know, the Norwegian, but at some point in time, you got to say enough's enough. Right. And, my my hard and fast line, and I recommend it to anybody listening that hasn't deployed or deployed much or hasn't worked in this business. When you look at not not even what how it affects the operation, that that level of incompetence or how it affects you personally or or, or your, your living conditions or anything like that or your support, if it is a a threat to your health and welfare or those that you are working with. In other words, that the individual is dangerous. Right. Then, yeah, he's got to go cut him loose. I mean, right. it's in my book in Somalia. I come in off an op with this military affairs outfit. We come into the office, as they called it, which is where the unit was that supported us. And um, this clerk is stands up with an old Willie Pete grenade in his hand, and he cocks his arm. He's going to toss it. So the captain next to me, who was a foreign material acquisition specialist, Captain M.I., but we had been infantry lieutenants in Korea together, different battalions, okay? And today he still works for a government agency. But Steve and I were both turned, and have you ever seen, like, Keystone Cops, like six guys trying to get out of the door, you know, or... <laughs> Or, you know, all the clowns getting out of the clown cart at the same time. We were fighting to get out this concrete doorway. It was just a concrete block building at the old embassy with no roof left and, you know, that type of thing. And this idiot was going to toss a Willie Pete grenade. Well, wow. he's a clerk. He's an E5 clerk, and I didn't like him personally. Personality conflict, if you want to call it that. I just like I think he was an asshole. <laughs> and other than just being a, a douchebag, uh, he's also an idiot because he had went out on a uh, mission with one of the other uh, squads, and they found a cache. And while he's at the cache, he thought he'd just pick up a piece of ordnance, a 1952 Korean War-era Willie Pete grenade. Huh. And he says, oh, it's okay. I put a rubber band around the spoon. <laughs> Anybody knows anything about hand grenades, ordnance, will tell you uh, how that entire firing mechanism will degrade in many ways, shapes, or form and become extremely uh, unstable. Right. right. You know, he probably, yeah, I mean, the spoon probably could have snapped at the point he put the rubber band on. But uh, the striker mechanism, the, the un, un, unstable detonator in it, everything. Right. And was literally going to toss it to something toss it to somebody. Now, how do you address that level of stupidity when you're a contractor and this guy's an E5 and he works for the major who tells you, you can't carry a weapon? And I'm like, yes, sir, I can't carry a weapon. And here it is. Said, you're, not, you're not required to issue me a weapon. But as a DA civilian, I am under regulation. I am uh, authorized to carry a weapon for my own self-defense. 
but his MI major did not want me carrying a pistol when I'm traveling in Somalia alone. Wow. Oh, not not one of his trucks on a mission with him. I'm getting in a helicopter and being dropped off in the middle of nowhere to go make contact with a civil affairs unit or an SF unit or, you know, liaison with my people. And I was literally walking through Savannah, uh, open ground for a mile or two at a time places oh, and jumping from helicopter to Humvee, uh, riding into ambushes, being sniped at, uh, actually getting into combat with some Botswanans, uh, just riding along in a loudspeaker truck with a, uh, one of my uh, ter- interpreters and catching 50 cal rounds. Uh, and, you know, but this guy, again, you're going to have that, and that's a problem with the conflicts. Uh, and I usually uh, take umbrage with uh, uh, field grade officers for some reason uh, that are still hidebound stateside uh, mentality, like why isn't your pistol belt buckled? Mm. Um, you know, uh, this type of thing. That 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 hat's unauthorized. I mean, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you know, we're in, the, we're in the middle of a friggin' war, right. and you're running around. You know, uh, you know. But anyways, and the stories there are legion, just legion. And I'm like, obviously, we must be winning the war. And you have nothing to do except to come up in the mess hall and ask me, what's that pistol on your hip? Is that a Kimber? I go, uh, no, sir. Uh, it's a 1911. Oh, it's a Springfield then. You go, no, sir. This is a U.S. government, uh, Remington Rand, actually. Well, it's a 45. I'm like, yes, sir. And of course I had, uh, you know, like Rosewood. Pacmire grips put on it, you know, but it was a it was a shiny general's presentation piece. It was chromed up and nickel plated, huh. and it's my barbecue gun. I'm wearing blue jeans and a polo shirt. It's my day off, and I went over to Camp Victory to get a get a meal in the Army mess hall. So yeah, that's my. I'm not carrying my standard issue State Department Glock. I put the 45 on. I'm like, what the hell, <laughs> you know? Let's have, you know, let's be a cowboy. Let's have some fun. Well, it, immediately this guy zeroes in on it, and he goes, "Well, 45. I happen to know." that only 9 millimeter is authorized in the AOR. Wow. I'm looking at this light colonel. He was like, signal core, supply, you know, we're doing some fucking thing. And I'm like, well, that's nice. Have a good day, colonel. But I'm like, you're going to come up and fuck with a contractor over his weapon. Right. I mean, really? Get in your fucking lane, dude. You, 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 have, you have the spare time for this? Right. And I could have whipped out my LOA, and on the standard contractor armed LOA, it says... Authorize to carry M9, comma, .45, comma, mm-hmm. et cetera. Yeah. yeah. They all said that. And there were a lot of guys carrying .45s. I, 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 the SF guys carried .45s. The Marsat guys carried .45s. I was in line with the whole A-team uh, um, in, uh, in the Joff at the Spanish Brigade, uh, Americans, that were all carrying .45s. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, okay. Colonel, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, which I didn't go there. But it's the mindset. Why? Why do you want to come over and fuck with, fuck with me? You don't know who I am. You don't know what my authorization is. What if I was from Langley? I can carry whatever the fuck I want. Right. Our Langley guy in Somalia carried a 357 in a shoulder holster, and he wore a, a buckwheat T-shirt that said "Okay." <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. I mean, I mean, there's a, there's a. You know, early on, back in the that's the thing, back in the day, you didn't fuck with anybody. Right. Um, 
2003, I'm sitting in the mess hall at Camp Wolf, Camp Wolverine, wherever the fuck it was in Kuwait, and I got this guy, Billy Regan, with me, who was at Black Hawk Down. Hmm. He was one of the Rangers at Black Hawk Down. Uh, he knew my, my a good buddy of mine from St. Bonaventure uh, that, uh, again, one of these guys that wasn't given a commission after a four-year scholarship and ended up enlisting, and he went to the Ranger Bat. He's a company clerk in the movie. That's uh, Ewan McGregor's character basically they changed his name huh. he's he got in some trouble later but he got the silver scar made e6 we don't go any further but huh. anyways bill and i walk in for midnight meal and we sit down and we're wearing you know the, the khaki fatigue pants unbloused and i probably got i think i had an old british uh commando sweater on he's got a black woolly pulley and we got our watch caps on our things on our hips and we sit down and we just start chowing down right Big screen TV in front of us. And this 82nd Airborne, E7, Pathfinder, Ranger Tab, all this shit comes over. Very politely says, excuse me, gentlemen, may I sit here? I'd like to talk to you. Oh, absolutely, Sarge, you have a seat. And we're like, Trump, Trump, Trump. That wouldn't have happened a couple years later. Hmm. I mean, all respect was lost. We just had, you know, in that day, early on, if you saw some guys in civvies, or paramilitary or whatever, or civilians in uniform, they were the cool guys. They came from backgrounds. That's the only way they got there, right. you know. Right. And I remember standing in line at uh, at uh, Stryker Mess Hall before they built the T-walls. It was just like a mess hall, and you parked your trucks around it in a circle like a, like a friggin' uh, truck stop. And I'm standing there with a buddy of mine who just got back from Cabo, by the way. He was on the Canadian ambassador's detail. Uh we're staying there with best buds ever since, and uh, we are this kid behind us go, private, you know, go, I wonder what those guys are making. And like, oh, probably about four or 5000 a month. Yeah, who they work for? Oh, they're KBR. <laughs> We've got all our shit on. We've got all our jocks. We're all jacked up with our vests and our, you know, plate carriers, rigs, extra ammo, weapons, all this shit. And, again, they didn't know. They just knew KBR, you know, right. and they knew KBR guys made about four or five. You know, we're making, right. I think, 12 to 15 then, you know. So right. there's a lot of misconceptions uh, amongst the military. And I've had a first sergeant rag and rag and rag on contractors. And then at some point come up to me after a couple months knowing I'm going, hey, man, well, I put in my papers, I'm getting out. So, okay, so could you get me a referral to your company? <laughs> yeah. I thought we're all bunch of worthless fucks and blah blah blah. You know now now it's like now you want a job, right? Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I want to jump back on the discipline. Uh, you know what I saw like in, in 08. The, the, to me, it was night and day from from 03, uh, and I'd watched it slip and slip and slip over the years. But haven't been out of country for about eight months and then come back in and see troops from the 101st in this condition. It just blew my mind. Mm. And, of course, the guys that were assigned to the perimeter duty for force protection weren't going to be your standouts. So and I understand that. I was a company commander. If you come to me and go, I need five, Rob, I need to detail five of your guys. Well, who am I going to send you? I'm not sending the top five that I went out there outside the wire with me, Right. Right. I'm gonna send my I'm gonna send my schmedlaps. <laughs> All right. So 
now I got the Ugandans, and the deal is the Ugandans are going to, we trained them and organized them and done the orientation and all this shit, and I got good leadership. I think I've got uh, some, some great people working with. I've got uh, uh, three of my four supervisors at that time were standouts, one we had to ship out. But I'm like, okay, I'm comfortable. We're good to go. But they're going to leave some of these Americans on the post. So I go walk out to my one front gate, and uh, there lays a six-foot-three uh, E3 on his back or on his side with his cap cocked, legs crossed, laying on some memory cardboard in the dirt mm. by the bunker. Mm. And the two or three Ugandans are standing there at parade rest as I walk up. I look at this guy, and I go, what the fuck are you doing? Oh, you know, you're hanging out, sir. I go, you talk to me, you get on your fucking feet. Oh, you can't, you ain't no fucking officer. I can't. I gave him a fucking boot. Huh. I gave him a fucking boot. I go, fine. Fucking charge me, asshole. Get up. Get the fuck out of here. And I sent him off. And I went to the B-Doc, uh, NCIC, and I go, get these fuckers out of here. And huh. I go, and he goes, you know, and I was going to say, who's this first sergeant? I will write his ass up. And again, the battalion commander has said, this is one of my staff officers, okay? Simulated rank, whatever the fuck you want. I was already a GS-15, you know, whatever. But this guy turned out he had, well, his first sergeant says he has a half dozen Article 15s already. We know some give him another one. <laughs> so that was that, you know, it's like what we're seeing today where you get arrested for uh, burglary, vandalism, property crime in New York State. Uh, the cops arrest you. The judge cuts you loose. No bail. We'll see you know, catch and release. Right. But if you don't, you know, in, in Vietnam, when this shit happened, they send guys what they called LBJ, long been jail. Mm. And there were guys who were like, fine, get me off the fire base. Send me to fucking jail. Mm. I don't want to get. So I don't know how many of these guys, the worthless fucks were doing that on purpose. You know, right. But, right. you know, because, again, you don't want to take your Schmed laps outside the wire with you unless you really have to. Right. So they go into ash and crash. So who's getting over? They're still drawing their pay. They're still going to get their I was there medals. They'll still get an honorable discharge if they don't do anything egregious. Because mm. I've been, things may have changed now, but I was there trying to, trying to put people in for generals because they deserved it. Mm. You know, and I went to bat for guys, too. You know, I was all, I'm not, I'm not out to looking to burn people, but man, when you, when you strike one of my NCOs and, and you do this type of bullshit, uh, you know, and you've been sent to the brig already, literally Portsmouth Naval Brig, uh, no, no, right. you know, you're not getting out with, with, you know, good paper if I can help it. <laughs> but, uh, I saw enough of that. I mean, there's a kid walking across the fob twirling his, uh, M16 over his head like a baton. Hmm. I yelled at him. I locked him up. I'm a civilian. I don't give a shit. I told him he had no military bearing. He looked like an idiot. I said, and I hope to God he had a a squad leader that would see that and and drop him for about 100. And I'm sure you probably have some listeners going, he's got a stick up his ass. He's he's a hard ass. He's one of those officers, whatever. Hey, people that know me will tell you, I'm pretty easy going. You know, I, I really, I'm the guy that will, you know, really give you a second, third chance and stuff. And 
to, to my detriment at many times. I've said, well, I should have known better. Hmm. Um, but uh, there's a point in time when you've got to police your own ranks as, as a contractor as well. And uh, you just can't, again, you know, I tell a guy, look, man, you, you've got to clean up your act. you got to quit doing this or do this, do that, you know, and it's like, and they tell you, fuck you. I'm like, okay, <laughs> good to go. <laughs> See you later. Oh, and man. then I get a phone call from the guy two weeks later. Can I come over to your team? Can you help me? And they want to transfer me out of country. And oh. I'm like, I already know. I already heard. You know, <laughs> and is... you shake your head, man. Right. You know, but oh, that's too uh, funny. <laughs> yeah, it, it happens. You know, right. and um, but yeah, I saw. You know, but when the guys talk about Ugandans, I said, I don't know about yours, but I took mine over some of the soldiers on that fob. Right. Now, admittedly, they were the, the rehab transfer, you know, Schmedlaps, whatever. But right. when I was a platoon leader in Korea, my platoon, I took all the re- I took the rehabs from the other companies. Hmm. I did it. We did one or two, and then I, it got to be the thing. Huh. Or I had I had the dirty dozen, so to speak, you know. But but they work because you lay you lay down the law and say, "Here's the deal. Right. This is your last chance. You you perform for me or else." Right. And a lot of it was either they didn't care for their leadership where they were, or they just didn't get along, or they just they just meet, they didn't have someone ready who told them, "I'll put a boot in your ass." Right. Yeah. And I had NCOs that would do the same thing. I mean, huh. you know, there are people that crave discipline, and if they don't get it. They're the worst ones. Huh. Yeah, that, that, so, that, that might be that. That's a good way of looking at it. And maybe that's what it is. You know, yeah. we sometimes call them attention yeah. seekers or whatever. But yeah. uh, wow. Hey, Rob, you know, I hate I hate to, you know, wrap this up. Um, but uh, we're um, rambled on. But I guess yeah. that was the purpose of all this. To the listeners, I go, you can, hey, you me, can love me or hate me. I've got people that do both. And, uh, uh, you can say everything I've said is bullshit, but. Um. Yeah, I talked to talk, but I've walked to walk, and I can I can prove that. And one thing I, I guarantee uh, everybody needs to do that's listening: if you're in the contract and you're going to be contracting, one, every time you leave a job, you go to somebody and you get a letter of reference. You get a letter of commendation. If you're in charge of people, you get them a certificate. Like my guys at Mamadia, um, uh, all the Americans. I had a nice 101st Airborne Rockasans. Uh, appreciation certificate done up. It's as simple as going to a first sergeant or a colonel and and putting it forward. Don't be a, don't be a shrinking violet. Right. You got to take care of your people. Yep. You got to document your own service. There's nothing worse than me having uh, myself had some very cool uh, special operations time working for a legend, and I didn't get uh, an interim OER out of it. Hmm. I did on the next SF assignment, but it's always. You know, I don't have the paper. I don't have the proof. Right. I was this guy acting as three. Um, there's uh, once or twice where I didn't get my in a tour award I was supposed to, hmm. or I didn't get the level I should. I think I should have had because I didn't go. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. But get those letters of reference because there are contracts that will say we need letters of reference from your last three jobs, or we want to. We need something from your to prove that you were in country for a year. Um. Whatever. Right. Uh, get that. Also, uh, and this is before the day of the digital camera and, and the smartphone, all that. 
I would make sure I had a picture of me everywhere I was, hmm. usually with a weapon or if I was in a foreign uniform or whatever I was doing, where I'd grip and grin or stand there with my guys or stand there with the colonel or whatever. So if someone says, oh, you were in Angola? Yeah. You want to see the photo album? <laughs> so I'm not, and, of course, nowadays everybody's taking hundreds of photos and putting them on social media, which is the other end of the spectrum you should be doing. Right. But document, document what you do. Right. Uh, and I would also keep just a, a journal in that. Put in the dates and times that you were in a unit or with a company or uh, who you work for because – after a while, it's like, oh, wait a minute, I forgot. I, I, I did that job. And I go to my file box and pull out uh, uh, the file that has all my certificates. I go, yeah, I got a certificate, man. I forgot. Hmm. You know, uh, and as an NCO told me, at first Special Warfare Battalion, he had been one of the guys that set up um, SOTIP, Special Operations Target Interdiction Course, basically the Green Beret Sniper School. Hmm. And he was an instructor there. Years later, he didn't have any proof of assignment type of thing and that they wanted him to go to the course. He said, I taught at the course. Hmm. So it's as simple as saying, he said, when you're an instructor on a course, get them to hand you a certificate for the course. Wow. If possible. You know, that's, that's great advice. But I tell you what, all that advice is all, it's all proven true. Yep. That I've gotten. It's like, yep, I knew this was going to, yep, he told me someday, and here it is. Right. You know, I whipped that shit out. And some of the, some rinky-dink U.S. Army courses have been the key to me getting on a great contract. Huh. You know, We but, need someone with a ver verifiable, you've done this, done that. Right. Okay, here it is. So anyways. No, and that. Document. Use your use your time use your time wisely. Self improvement, education. There's so much available. I mean, you can you can be deployed, living in a tent, and you can take classes at Oxford for fucks. Unbelievable. Right. No, and, and what you're saying is all great advice. And like we said earlier, you know, a lot of it you learn the hard way from experience because I've experienced um, what you're talking about uh, precisely because it's like, what am I going to need this for? And tossed it or burned it. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh crap. Uh, so anyway, um, so and, with, oh, and every and every job is going to lead to another job or not lead to another job. <laughs> it's all networking. It, you're, you're going to find out. Maybe other people are different, but about 90% of the jobs. Someone heard me or someone said to a PM, I know a guy, or someone gets a notice on a job and says, you're perfect for this and sends it to me. Huh. So you're going to make friends. You're going to, you're going to have lifelong uh, compatriots or, or coworkers in this. You're also going to make some enemies. That's true. That's just how, how it goes, you know? Absolutely. Yep. Well, Rob, I want, right. with that said, um, you know, you, you took care of my, what do you want to leave them with? So <laughs> we don't have to do that one. Thank you. Uh, Rob, I got to say, man, it was a sincere pleasure, um, having you as a guest on this show and, uh, talking with you. And, uh, we're, we're probably going to do this again because there's so many great stories and stuff that we kind of covered, but there's so much more to uncover and talk about. So, you know, maybe at some point in the future, we can do it again. Um, absolutely. So uh, anyway, with that said, uh, we'll go ahead and 
put the wraps on this one, and uh, I want to thank all the folks uh, who listened to this. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, another episode of Oconus the Contractor's Life. Again, my uh, my special guest was uh, Rob Crot. So uh, remember to be careful what you wish for out there, folks, and until next time, keep it real.